Have you ever thought to yourself, why can't I find what I'm searching for? Me too. I expect brands and retailers to make search relevant and make recommendations that are aligned with my preferences and buying history. That means being my shopping guide and surprising me with items I didn't even know I needed. For retailers, this is what Coveo's AI-powered search delivers. By learning from every website visit and query, Coveo builds insights and profiles that predict relevant suggestions for each visitor, often before they've even started searching. Learn about how Coveo can help increase your online conversion rates, basket size, and repeat traffic by visiting Coveo.com. That's C-O-V-E-O.com. Hello, and welcome to the Retail Rundown Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Lewis. Joining us today are my guests, Alex Becker and Ricardo Belmar. Alex is the Vice President of Sales at Linworks, a total commerce solution that connects and manages and automates commerce operations, powering businesses to sell wherever their customers are and capture every revenue opportunity. Ricardo is a Rethink Retail top influencer and advisor. He's also the Senior Partner Marketing Advisor for Retail at Microsoft founder of Retail Razor, and advisor for George Mason University at its Center for Retail Transformation. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here. On today's episode, we're covering a few key takeaways from Rethink Retail's recently released Commerce in 2025 report, which reveals the top 10 fastest growing areas that will reshape how we shop over the next three years. The first insight that I'd like to talk about is direct-to-consumer. It's no secret that Everyone is looking at and evaluating or growing their direct-to-consumer efforts and initiatives. Really, we've seen that these DTC brands are on the cutting edge of retail innovation, as well as traditional legacy brands have increasingly been moving into this space. For example, Adidas, Nike, and Levi's have all integrated DTC as a key pillar in their sales strategy. So I'd like to dive a little deeper with the two of you and talk about, you know, how do you see this trend evolving and what's going to impact uh, commerce with direct-to-consumer in the years to come? D2C is going to continue to grow. Obviously, COVID shined a very bright light on that need for a lot of different brands across many different categories. But what's interesting is the consumers were actually already there and looking for that. And so that awareness of the brands and the retailers to have to really emphasize and focus on it, I think, may be heightened but the interest from the consumers were prevalent before COVID. The challenge that we see is probably not does a brand do a D2C strategy, but how comprehensive is the strategy going to be? You mentioned, obviously, some very large brands that have put a lot of emphasis behind that strategy. But interestingly enough, Linworks did a study last year of about 1,000 consumers, both in North America and in the UK. And one of the things that we recognized was how many different destinations people were going to during their D2C shopping journey. And that number was actually seven. So on average, the consumers that we surveyed were hitting seven different destinations as part of their buyer's journey. And yet at the same time, the brands that we interviewed were struggling to keep up with three of them. I think that the D2C strategy question then becomes, if my consumers and the people I'm trying to interact with are going to a lot of different destinations, yet I struggle with being able to maintain and manage that appropriately, how am I going to handle that? And so I really think the question comes down to how comprehensive is the D2C strategy 
not just should we have a DTC strategy. Something I would add to that that I find most interesting when we talk to both a retail and direct uh, consumer brands, it really has a lot to do with both the product category that you're in and how consumers like to buy products in that category. So for example, I think there's a big difference between how consumers view buying a Nike sneaker for example, versus a bag of potato chips. So this is particularly true, I think, when you look at CPG products that most customers are used to just buying a big collection of them in one shopping trip at a grocery store, for example, or at a mass merchant, versus thinking, well, I want to buy Doritos. So do I go to one specific destination for Doritos and then I go to another destination to buy potato chips? And that starts to add complexity, I think, to it rather than simplify things, which really is what I think drives the emotional value for consumers to buy direct from a brand. It's perceived as easier. It's perceived as a better value, even though that isn't necessarily always the case, right? Sometimes the strategy and direct to consumer for a brand is that they'll get better margin for themselves going direct and then relying on wholesale relationships. But to the consumer, it's seen as I'm, I'm getting that value direct from the brand. So I must be getting more from them since I don't have to go to anyone that sits between myself as, as the buyer and the brand. So I think those issues vary. So you, you see different results when we're talking about apparel related categories versus say packaged consumer goods. And then I think there's also a difference when we look at those digitally native or startup brands that are disrupting a particular product category. You know, when you look at those brands, how do they get most of their customers to buy from them? They're really good at telling their brand story. They usually stand for something that creates that impact in that category in the sense that they're openly telling you that they view how they make their product very differently from perhaps how many of the legacy brands in that category create their product. And that drives more emotional value for consumers. So here examples might be brands like an Allbirds, for example, or other digitally natives that either haven't yet opened stores or are just starting to open a store to, to broaden their reach. Those disruptors have a difference or are seen differently, I should say, by those customers. And that's why they buy from them. So there's definitely, I think, an issue around what category are you in? How are customers expecting to buy. If you think about categories like apparel, you know, consumers have bought from specialty apparel retailers for years. So they're in some ways already conditioned to have a willingness to buy direct from brands. Whereas other product categories, they were used to going to mass merchandise retailers where they would see 20 different brands of the same category. And that alters how they perceive this relationship with the brands. I think for the brands themselves, there's plenty of upside in having that direct relationship, not to mention all the value they're going to get from collecting all this first-party data around the customers that they're engaging with that they might not get by selling through other retailers. So I certainly expect we'll see more of it. But I think I agree that you know consumers like this experience generally in most categories. I think the challenges are for those categories where consumers have this ingrained approach to how they buy that they might need to overcome in order to go direct. Yeah, I think those are great points, Ricardo. And you're exactly right. Brands need to think about how am I perceived by my consumer and my strategy is going to be different maybe than other industry categories? And, and also, I may want to choose a different strategy to differentiate from my direct competitors. So I think there's a lot to digest here. And Alex, you know, I know you mentioned that there's maybe eight different sites that people go to in that experience. And I think that for many brands, kind of transition us to the next topic, which is marketplaces. I think that there is this direct-to-consumer where they're looking at, on their website, what they're transacting, at least from an e-commerce perspective. But then there's also like, well, their social channels. So then how much of that is really part of their D2C strategy? And then there is marketplaces, where increasingly in marketplaces, they're able to sort of set up the shop within a shop, if you will, 
sometimes physically in these stores, uh, you know, Best Buy and Target have some of those models. But we're seeing that inside of the online marketplace uh, environments as well. And so I'd love to transition the discussion a little bit to marketplaces because I think that's a rising challenge for many brands as they're looking at how do they get their products out there. I know, for example, Walmart has made huge gains from 2019 to 2020, and it has 90% of their product assortment on on their online marketplace. Why are we seeing so much growth in marketplaces across the board? Yeah, good question. And I think that trend is going to continue to your point. Some of the data that we had looked at in that previous research was that 90% of the actual transactions occurred or originated, I should say, on the marketplace when they were doing their research. So to your point exactly, they might ultimately hit the .com, but they're going to be doing some reviews. Could be on social media sites, uh, could be social transactions ultimately. I mean, we're starting to see a proliferation of Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, right, as part of that buyer's journey. So, you know, there's a couple of benefits. I mean, one, the marketplaces, the Amazons, the Walmarts that you've referenced, uh, the Etsy's of the world, I mean, they command a large amount of traffic. So there's a lot of awareness in the market about them to begin with. You could argue they're their own brand already. The challenge then becomes how do you have that differentiated kind of strategy in that marketplace? It can be noisy. You can have a lot of competitors uh, vying for that same conversion and that same engagement process. There's kind of a depth to that strategy as well. I think the last part was... And again, it goes back to the research that we looked at last year, which was if people are hitting these different locations, marketplaces included, social included, right, .coms included, how am I going to get there? How am I going to support that consumer through their journey? And if I'm not there in supporting that consumer through their journey, I'm missing that opportunity to engage with them, potentially missing that opportunity to have that ultimate conversion. One way I like to look at the marketplaces, particularly in that context uh, that you just mentioned, how are you driving traffic for you as the brand, right, to the marketplaces that you expect customers are already buying at. And I think this is why we're seeing the ad revenue rising so much in these larger marketplaces. You know, we've all heard the stats about how Amazon now is like the third largest advertiser online after Google and Facebook, because their marketplace, you know, if you're a brand selling there and you're in a category that has hundreds, if not thousands of options for a customer that does a product search on the site, how are you going to get your brand to the top of that list, knowing that if you're buried five pages deep in those search results, the customer is likely to never find you there, even though you know that customer is going to be on this marketplace. So the ad revenue potential, I think, is, is pretty significant. The need for brands to actually buy that advertising in order to be successful, I think, is also uh, critical. And, and to me, this, this is partly what drives a number of retailers to want to transform their e-commerce site into another marketplace. So it's not just about uh, the big mass merchandise marketplaces like Amazon and Walmart or, or Etsy. Home Depot, for example, has turned their site into a marketplace type of offering where they have third-party options and they're generating ad revenue from their product pages as well. And they're seeing an increase in conversion from uh, manufacturers and brands that are, are buying those ad units. So there's definitely an advantage for retailers to do it. I do think there's a limit though in this, in that if you think about how many marketplaces does a consumer need to go to, to find what they want to buy. And this, I think, speaks to uh, you know, having too many options, right? So not every retailer can turn into a marketplace. Not every website can be a marketplace. For example, you know, we haven't seen, I would argue, as successful marketplace options in the luxury segment because the experience just isn't quite what the customers are looking for. You know, when you're looking at categories where consumers have a pretty good idea of what they want. Maybe it's just down to a couple of small options they need to decide from. And by doing some quick searches on a marketplace and seeing a list of a few dozen products, they can make a decision. 
But when you're shopping for very specific and unique things, particularly, I think, in the luxury space, that's a different experience you're looking for that a marketplace might not be optimized for because they're really not optimized for that level of quality and, I, I would argue, uniqueness that you expect to get from a luxury seller. Even in other categories, I, I think there are some differences that, that we could go into. And I think you, you could probably do a whole show on just talking about what types of categories work best in this scenario. But I'm sure that we're going to see continued growth in these marketplaces, particularly the mass merchandise ones. If anything has come out of the pandemic from the consumer's perspective, you know, everyone likes to talk about convenience capabilities. But I believe that one of the buying habits that definitely won't remain with consumers is they've narrowed down a lot of choices. They like the idea of having a one-stop shop where they can buy an overwhelming majority of things that they know they need to buy from just one place all at once. And it is convenience related, but I think it's also a perception of value that comes from that. So these marketplaces are very good at demonstrating that value to the consumer that keeps them coming back. I'd like to flip the discussion into maybe a, a little bit of a boring direction, what sounds like a boring direction, but was actually one of the top areas, 90% of technology executives felt that supply chain was going to go through huge changes. So in, in a lot of ways, supply chain is the new black. And we've seen a lot of challenges uh, through the pandemic, through the ports being clogged up. It's especially prevalent with consumer electronics right now, where everything from the manufacturing side of things to getting things through to the ports and unloaded into their destinations is challenging. And then even, you know, as we look at the increasing demand and expectation, consumer expectation for not only two-day delivery, but one-day delivery to one-hour delivery to 15 minutes to pick up in store, understanding where your supply chain is at is absolutely critical to the new level of consumer expectations. What are some of the things that you see, you know, coming in the, the global supply chain solutions everywhere from the far back end all the way through to that that front end uh, and having things ready for the last mile? There's a lot in that question. I actually uh, saw an article the other day, I think it was John Lewis uh, in the UK, is actually chartering its own ships to be able to get goods in the stores for this holiday season. Because to your point, they might be able to have the goods manufactured, but they can't even get transported. And so, you know, that's a pretty drastic or dramatic approach that, that a retailer has to take. But I think if I look at kind of the supply chain in general, there's a lot of demand right now and not enough supply to be able to support it. So what do I need to do as the retailer of the brand? I mean, first, to your point, at that customer engagement experience, so right at the beginning, am I providing the information of when that product will be fulfilled? Is it going to be this week? Is it going to be two days? Is it going to be one hour? Is it going to be a month from now? You know, if I look at categories like furniture, there's a large backlog of that and has been for some time. One of the things that consumers always value as part of their purchase path is that clarity and visibility into what will that fulfillment look like. So I think on the front end, you got to make sure you're disclosing that information and, and providing it cleanly, which means you actually have to have that information kind of going all the way back through your supply chain which means you've got to have systems that are connected, right? And now again, that issue gets more complex across the various D2C channels that you're engaging with. And so you've got to be able to consolidate all of that into kind of one central view. At the end of the day, there are retailers that are trying to provide even part of their retail shopping experience as the e-commerce fulfillment center. You mentioned consumer electronics, a very large consumer electronics retailer that you know is taking a portion of their stores to actually be the e-com fulfillment center and to be able to do buy online pickup in store and so on. So I, it's a complex problem. 
it starts with even the raw materials and the manufacturer, but also then the distribution of the goods. And I think it also then goes into what's the consumer's understanding and expectation, trying to collect and provide all of that information is no easy task. And then being able to execute on the commitment that you've made is really the expectation of the consumer. Yeah, this really has become a complex area. I, mean, I just uh, last week came off finishing a series of three different webcasts with some of our best supply chain technology partners. And there's a common theme that's that, you know, with all of these problems around shortages, port delays, factory capacity, none of this is short term, right? None of these things are going away in the near term, which means that all of the planning that goes into uh, maintaining your inventory levels, forecasting your future purchases, to, just to maintain the supply that you, you know your customers want, all of that has to become much more detailed and even looking further out. So the tool sets, uh, I think, is becoming a pretty significant area of investment now, not just in terms of overall managing your supply chain end to end, but you're really looking at the details of how am I making adjustments? How am I building resiliency and diversity into my supply chain? Those are becoming critical issues for retailers. In the past, most often they would optimize for just reducing cost in their supply chain so they could keep the overall cost down uh, of the products they're selling. But now what everyone is realizing is that optimization has made everything so deeply single-threaded that any kind of disruption like we've seen over the past year and continue to see now just completely throws everything into havoc for them. And, and consumers see this, right? I think you know, we, we all know the stories over the past year of empty shelves and shortages, and sometimes in the most bizarre product categories that we never expected to see shortages. And there was often talk of how you know sometimes people wanted to blame the AI tools that they were using because they, the models that they had couldn't predict this kind of a, a pandemic type event. And in fact, one of our, our partners had done some really interesting research into this themselves with their own data and found that as many as 70% of the time, they saw that when there was human intervention that overrode a lot of the output from these AI models, they actually made it worse, not better. And so there is this fine balance that retailers and brands have to come to now between deciding how well is the predicted outcome that they're AI systems are telling them versus what their own experience tells them. And there's a significant amount of up-leveling of skill sets that we're seeing in people who are managing their supply chains around how they interpret data, how they derive insights from this data so that they can not only better feed these AI systems, but also have more trust from the outcomes that they're seeing from that. And it's not a short-term problem. I and mean, I, I think that anecdotally, I saw a note the other day that there we're now up to 72 ships waiting to get into the port of Los Angeles uh, just to unload their containers. I've seen numerous data points saying that what used to cost $2,500 to get a container from Asia to North America is now as high often as $6,500 or $8,000. So these costs are skyrocketing as a result from all these delays. And retailers have to find ways to have multiple sources, have ways to add more diversity in that supply chain and get this resilience in there. That's really been the key word that I hear most often from everyone that we're talking to is that they're not just trying to build intelligence into their supply chain processes, but they need more resiliency. I couldn't agree more with that. And I would say you kind of hit on the, the last topic I wanted to jump on too, which is artificial intelligence. I don't think we can get through a conversation about the future of commerce without taking a look at how AI is reshaping you know, literally everything. And I love your comment about, you know, that AI actually had some of the predictions right and that the human choices was where there were some of the larger errors. 
And I think that's a little bit what Elon Musk says about AI driving, right? Is that it's not that it doesn't make mistakes. It just makes mistakes less than the humans do. <laughs> but AI is impacting everything, you know, and, and I, I'd like to start with maybe on the the data side, the way that it's allowing brands and uh, retailers to think about all of their data that has been siloed, separated in so many different ways. And it's just such a sea of data that it's, it's humanly impossible to go through it. But with artificial intelligence, it can pick, you know, all the needles out of the haystack, not just even find one. What are your thoughts on on how AI is going to reshape uh, commerce in, in the coming years? As the machine learns more and more of the data gets input, it gets smarter and better at what it's doing. So I think the first piece is, if I just think about it from a personalization standpoint, and you know, if you look at personalization as kind of its own topic, it's how am I really going to make that a personalized experience for me in my moment while I'm there? That's kind of the ideal. And so I think it's just going to continue to get better because there's going to be more data points to pull from and that are helping feed those models, to your point. How do you kind of leverage some of that technology for what that customer experience is, not just in the shopping piece, of it, but kind of, again, the transaction component and then the fulfillment side of it. And I think Ricardo was just kind of hitting on a lot of the work that's being done on the supply chain side with that. But you know, looking at things like digital assistance, smart displays, what's my experience like when I'm in the store or online? Are they aligning? And I just think there's going to be a lot of continued growth and benefit from AI. Probably the responsibility is going to be how far do you want to take that? You could probably make an argument that you can cross the line at some point between trying to provide a personalized experience versus one that's maybe too personal, right? So I don't feel like I'm actually shopping, but it might get a little bit too personal. I think there's a fine line there. Yeah, that's a good point as to you know how far do you take AI-based technologies into the actual shopping experience versus the more back-end processes like supply chain. I really like to look at computer vision as one of the, a positive example. So how are we seeing implementations of computer vision even today that I think are just going to continue to grow by 2025? And, and let's take the in-store experience. I mean, everyone's favorite topic here has to do with cashierless checkout experiences, right? To reduce that final friction point in the in-store experiences is when you're ready to buy and now you have to wait to be able to complete that purchase. Amazon was first in this, but we're seeing many other solutions now coming out that are accomplishing the same thing, where you have this capability to just have whatever it is you pick up in the store detected by computer vision technologies so that you don't have to go through a checkout process anymore. I think that's one example that we're going to see more and more of. I know there are a lot of skeptics and, and folks on sort of both sides of this discussion where how accurate can the system be when a store is crowded, for example. I know that's one question that comes up quite often. And I think what the answer to that lies in how this technology scales over the years. There's a reason why we've seen the implementations that are out there so far of this at a somewhat of a smaller scale. So we've seen it in convenience store formats first. We've seen Amazon grow it step by step into ever larger store formats. And it's the scaling factor that and processing power is really what determines how far you can take this. But there are other more localized examples. We've seen even in years past examples of really high-end technologically advanced fitting room type solutions or, or magic mirrors, right? We've seen where AI can help and computer vision can help things. Uh, you know, Sephora has an example where you can do essentially a virtual makeover in, in the store. We've seen fitting room examples where the mirror itself can help show you other options to what you've brought into the fitting room. You can use technology there to 
reach out to an association to sort of have them bring you something else. And these are things that are already possible. So if we look at where will this go in a few more years, what else can we do to interact with a product? You know, you could see examples where a display where normally would be merchandise just to show off a particular product or maybe three products in one display. But what if you now allowed for a model where a customer can pick up the product and interact with it and have that be a trigger event that allows either displays to show additional content, lighting could change, for example, to show different aspects of the particular piece of merchandise. Uh, and again, these are things we can do now, but they're only going to get better as these technologies advance. When you look at other areas in, around the store, for example, um, one that I don't think gets talked about enough, but I think AI is going to have a pretty significant role to play is going to be in security around stores, you know, and, and reducing shrinkage in those environments. You know, we've always had surveillance video in stores. We've always had sort of, you know, human interaction, monitoring those systems to see if they're trying to reduce stolen merchandise. But we can expect to see AI get more and more plugged into this scenario to help automate some of these processes so they won't have to be as human dependent. Of course, this is where all, all the controversial pieces around AI come to be. You know, we, we see more of an acceptance for facial recognition, I think, in Asia than we do here in the US. There's, there's a little bit more resistance in the West over what uh, facial recognition systems can and can't do. There's more acceptance, I think, in Asia that we've seen where, you know, facial recognition can be used as a form of payment. How much easier can you reduce the friction by relying on these sorts of AI systems? And then you get into areas with augmented reality and then virtual reality, where again, I think AI is sort of the fuel that's kind of pouring the gasoline on, on those technologies to help make them more and more useful. Where today that the usefulness has been fairly limited, I, th I think, in these implementations, but I expect that in the next few years, we're going to see more and more of them coming to fruition. Great. Wow. A lot to take in for sure. Well, Alex and Ricardo, I want to thank you both for you know joining me on the show and, and talking a little bit about the future of commerce. A couple of points to the audience. Uh, one is the Future of Commerce report is now out on the website. Please download. It's the you know the top ten areas uh, that are going to be impacted and a look from experts as to what's going on in those areas. So please uh, take a look at that and then. We're also going to be discussing the future of commerce and the report in even more depth at the Lynn Academy event. And that event is coming up on October 6th and 7th. You'll hear from speakers representing Facebook, eBay, Forrester, and more. So register today at lynnacademy.com. Again, uh, thank you guys so much for joining me on this discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.